it's such a blessing, and I'll actually, that brings up a good point, that um, we always could use people um, that have a heart for children, that have uh, some, some basic gifts and talents to be able to teach them and nurture them and compassion for them to help out with our children's ministry. So if you're interested, um, just come and let me know or send an email to the church or call us and let us know that you're interested. You can even use those connection cards on the back. You can write out things you're interested in. But um, uh, we always need people to be able to help out in our children's ministry, how important that is uh, to be able to take care of our children in a very safe and nurturing environment and to teach them the Word of God. Amen? And so we want to do that. So that's what they're doing now. So that's what we're going to do now, right? And so uh, what we're going to look at, of course, we're taking a break from our study of Acts for this week and next week. Um, But this morning, as you probably would have expected, we're going to look at the story of Jesus entering Jerusalem. It is very um, commonly called the triumphal entry. We're going to look at that today in a a perhaps a unique perspective. Because there's many ways to look at this very popular and familiar story. And we know, of course, it's a true story. It's about when Jesus has really ended, come to the end of his earthly ministry, and he is entering Jerusalem for the very last time. Uh, And he has finally um, let his disciples know that, uh, that it is okay to let people know that he is the true Messiah and that he is coming in to be known and to be made known as the Messiah, the sent one. And uh, so we're going to look at a very, um, just a very particular part of that story. So our passage today is in Luke 19. It's in other Gospels, but in Luke 19, um, we're going to, I'm going to read 28 to 44. It will be up on the screen for you. But I'm going to read this long passage so we remember the story. But then there's only just a few verses that I want to focus on. All right. So in just a couple of minutes, we're going to read that Luke 19. Starting in verse 28, we'll get to that in a minute. But you know, there is this very popular adage in our society that says, don't judge a book by its cover, right? We all know what that means. And if just practically speaking, you look at a cover of a book, you know, it may give you an idea of what's in there, but you have to really open it and start reading it to get the details. So We say that often, right? Don't judge a book by its cover. And I'd like to think that just personally, we don't want to be judged by just what we look like on the outside either, right? We don't want to be judged. I mean, you know, sometimes we can look at people and of course we have an immediate sort of impression and a perception, but we never want it to just stay there because we want to get to know people. So we can't judge a book by its cover and we don't want that to happen in life circumstances, especially with other people. And, you know, there's a very popular TV show. Uh, it's widely popular. It's really based all on that one premise. Do you know what the show is? It's, a, it's about people that sing. The Voice. The Voice, right? The Voice, yeah, yeah. And uh, so it's pretty much based on that premise. Because if you've ever seen the show, they get contestants that come in. And there's a panel of, of judges. Of course, they have all their banter and everything back and forth. But they start the whole show with somebody coming out, and each time somebody comes out to sing and perform, they have their backs turned to them. So they're sitting in their, their chairs, right, but they're facing the other way. So that all they hear is the voice, and that's why it's called the voice. 
So they can't see what they're wearing. They can't see how tall or short they are, how, how big or thin or what color their skin is or any of that. And so this way, they're not judging the book by its cover, right? And then they have to make a decision of whether or not they want to support this person and, and continue on with them in the whole process of the show. They have to make that decision before they turn around. They make that decision. Their chair turns around magically, right? Their chair turns around. Then they see the cover. They see the cover of the book. See, then they see what they were just hearing. But they didn't want to make... The whole point is they don't judge what they're hearing based upon what they're seeing, you know? And um, so it's, it's a very common premise. And I think that we all understand what that means. And I would like to think that none of us, again, would want to uh, be judged but just by the way that we look. And so we want to treat others the same way. And so when we look at Jesus' entry into Jerusalem, what we call the triumphal entry, there are many different perspectives we can take on this one story. There was a, a great movie. I really liked it. It came out a number of years ago. I believe it was called Vantage Point. And I don't know if you ever saw it, but, um, uh, you know, I don't know how popular it was, but it was really interesting because the whole premise of the movie was there was this uh, large gathering of people. There were some politicians speaking, and they were from around the world in this great big area. Uh, I forget what city it was. And there was a bombing, right? So, of course, like, you know, a lot of the movies and shows we have, there was a bombing to try to, it was a terrorist bombing. And so the whole movie kind of shows the same event, but from different vantage points. There's the one who created the bombing, the one who was on the stage talking, the security guards, people that were injured, right? There's like a few of them. So they they show you for a few minutes somebody's perspective and vantage point. Then they go back to the beginning and they show the same event again, but from somebody else's perspective. And then at the end, you see how it all comes together. See that? What happened at that event truly happened. That was reality. But everybody had a different take on it, a different vantage point. So if you can kind of picture Jesus entering into Jerusalem, of course, riding on the donkey, right? And he's riding in, and there are crowds of people, his disciples mostly, who recognize who he is. A lot of them went out and greeted him on the road. We're going to see that in the, in the story when we read it. And he's coming into Jerusalem. They're waving their palm branches, laying cloaks on the road welcoming him and they're saying what hosanna hosanna right and so they welcome him in now if you were sort of on a hilltop looking down and you were to see this happening and jesus coming in you sort of knew the players you would have a certain perspective say wow what a celebration this must be great how jesus must feel so good that they're welcoming him in right and how the people are so excited they know who he is right they know he's Jesus the Messiah and he's bringing in this kingdom of peace and hope and, and all of that. But really, as you dig deeper, without judging the book by its cover, you're going to see that things aren't really as they appear to be. So we're going to look at one particular vantage point or aspect of that this morning. So as I read the passage, just kind of picture that. If you're watching this event take place, And then we're going to look at just a few verses from that passage. All right, so let's do that together. And this is Luke 19. This is Luke's version of this event. 
starting in verse 28, going up to verse 44. This is the account of the triumphal entry. And when he had said these things, meaning Jesus, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. Jerusalem was up on a hill, so he had to go up. When he drew near Bethpage and Bethany, at the mount uh, that is called Olivet, he sent two of his disciples. So I'll stop there for a second. He, so he waited. He got to these towns, uh, Bethany and Bethpage, right outside of Jerusalem on his way, and he stopped. He sent two of his disciples, saying, Go into the village in front of you, where on entering you will find a colt tied, on which no one has ever yet sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? You shall say this, the Lord has need of it. So those who were sent went away, and they found it just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owner said to them, why are you untying the colt? And they said, the Lord has need of it. See how that played out just like he said it would? And they brought it to Jesus, and throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. And as he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples, they began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all of the mighty works they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. And he answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. When he drew near and he saw the city, he wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. But now they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you. And they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. Now, not a very encouraging way to end that passage, right? But I chose, of course, to include that, and you'll see why as we we go on. But, of course, we always kind of come to Palm Sunday, and, and uh, we recognize it's the week before Easter Sunday, Resurrection Sunday, and, and uh, we understand that it's all about this story. Jesus riding into Jerusalem about a week, a little less than a week, than His crucifixion, His death, and resurrection. We call it the Passion Week. Right, the Passion of Christ. and So this is when he enters Jerusalem for the last time. And there's a ministry that takes place during that time, of course. And we know when it gets to the Friday and the Thursday and the Friday, the Last Supper, and, and uh, with his disciples in the upper room. And then, of course, he's betrayed. And he goes to the cross after being tortured and is buried. And then on the third day, he rises again. And so we're going to, of course, look at that next week. But This is what is happening. This is the beginning of all of that. But I end with those verses, verses 41 to 44 in particular, because that is the vantage point 
that we're going to look at this morning. Again, you could look at this whole passage from the viewpoint of the crowds, of maybe the disciples that met him on the road, maybe from the two guys that went to get the donkey. There's a whole sermon there about why they did that. Why did the the, the owner just let them take it, right? You could look at it from the vantage point of the Pharisees, the religious leaders, who told them to stop them from worshiping him. Or we could take it from the vantage point of our Lord Jesus himself. And that's what we're going to look at specifically in verse 41 to 44. Because in verse 41, it simply says this. When he drew near and saw the city, when he finally got through Bethany and Bethpage, and he could see the city there, it says he wept over it, very simply. Think of the contrast. Maybe we don't always think of it this way, but take this perspective. Here is the crowd shouting, Hosanna, blessed be the name of the Lord. We sang those two things this morning, right? But then there is Jesus. And again, if you were to see it from a distance, man, it would look like a great celebration. But Jesus is approaching this great crowd. They've rolled out the red carpet, so to speak. They're laying down palms and waving them in cloaks and shouting and recognizing him, so they thought, as the Messiah who would come to overthrow the Roman government and occupation. They were so excited. They thought they were worshiping him appropriately and welcoming him in. But here is Jesus viewing all of this. And it simply says, he wept. He wept over his city, Jerusalem. But it goes on not to just leave us hanging. It says why he did that. He said in verse 42, Would that you, even you, he's talking to Jerusalem, the inhabitants, the people of Israel, those who at that moment were welcoming him in. He says, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. And the other two verses, really, we won't focus on it, but what he's doing is he is foretelling the destruction of Jerusalem and their temple, which would happen literally about 40 years later in 70 A.D. Over a million inhabitants killed, their beloved temple destroyed by the same Romans that these people thought Jesus was coming to conquer. It's amazing when you think of it. Jesus weeps. Why? Because they do not recognize Him for who He truly is. And recognize the kingdom that He came to usher in. And He says, because He knows, of course, all that's going to happen. And really, He's the only one, the only player in this story that knows exactly what's about to take place. That they're accepting Him, but in essence, He is rejecting Jerusalem. Because what happens just a few short days later, that jubilant, joyous acceptance of the crowds turns to mocking and hatred, screaming out, give us Barabbas, crucify him, crucify him. So Jesus knew what was about to happen, and he wept over it. But look at verse verse 32, and this is where I wanted to park for just a few minutes together. He says, He says this, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make 
for peace. Jesus was coming to bring peace to His people. We know that He is called Prince of Peace. Is that right? He is the Prince of Peace. Do you remember... Um, you remember what the angels said about him on his birth, right? That there would be peace coming to the world. But the whole point is they had a different perspective on what was going to happen. See, they thought that he was going to bring peace by the sword. To bring peace by military might and strength to overthrow through weapons what was happening to them under the impression of the oppression of the Roman, um, the Roman soldiers and the Roman occupation of Jerusalem, and so they thought Jesus was coming in to conquer them in a very earthly way, to take up his earthly throne then and there. But they didn't recognize that Jesus was coming to bring a kingdom of peace. And if you notice at the very beginning of the whole passage I read. In verse 28 and 29, it said, When he said these things, he went on ahead. Right? He went on ahead to say that. And so as he was saying these things, because he recognized, it says earlier in the passage, that they thought the kingdom was about to be inaugurated right then and there. The kingdom that they were looking for. So he wanted there to be no mistake made about it. Even if you went further back, we don't have time for it today, further back in that passage, that chapter in Luke, Jesus tells the very last of his parables. It's the parables of what's called the ten minas, right? Similar to the one of the ten talents. Where there's the nobleman who says that he has to go away to receive his kingship, but he'll be back. And he leaves the money, right, for the three of the servants. He gathers ten around and talks about the three of them. And when he goes away, the one invests it and makes a tenfold, the other one gets fivefold, and the other one just buried it. Remember that? And he comes back and he, he praises the first two for doing the right thing while he was away, for carrying on his mission, for making sure everything was being invested properly so he could grow. But the third one he chastised as a wicked servant. He told that parable, the very last story and parable that he taught to his disciples, to sort of wrap up his earthly ministry, he did that to summarize all of his teachings to his disciples, to say basically, he is that nobleman who needs to go away to receive his kingship, to go back to the Father, but he's returning one day. So the whole point to his disciples in telling that parable was, what are you going to do with all that I've given you while I'm away? Because... I will return. And the third servant who didn't invest wisely, basically we could say, you know what? He says that he feared him. He feared the master. Basically feared the Lord. And he said, you know what? I think basically you're saying you didn't think I was going to come back. And don't we often do that? If we're not taking all that Jesus has given us and investing in His kingdom and sharing the gospel and living for Him, and it's like we're saying, in essence, maybe we're not so sure He's actually going to return. But Jesus said, I will come back. I will come back. And you'll have to give an account 
for what has happened. And so he says that as his last story because he knew he was about to enter Jerusalem to wrap up his teachings with the disciples. And then he comes and says he knew that the crowds thought the kingdom was one way. The kingdom was one way. And so he told them that parable to get them ready. But nonetheless, Jesus approaches Jerusalem. And it says very simply that he wept. What a contrast between the celebration and Jesus weeping. You see, the people thought that he was coming to bring a kingdom, to usher in a kingdom with his, himself as king through military force. But his, his triumph would be a spiritual one. His triumph would actually need to take him to the tragedy of the cross. So what is the implication here for us? The implication is simply this. We look at this story unfolding and we see very simply that God's ways are not our ways. See, the people, if they had their way, they would have ushered in this kingdom very differently by violently overthrowing the Roman occupation. They would have never conceived of doing it the way Jesus did, by death on a cross, by apparent defeat of their leader, by the suffering of the Messiah himself for the sins of his people. If you look through this story, you can see that God's ways are not our ways. See, God has the right to man's possessions. When he sent the two disciples to go take the donkey, right? To take the the colt, and he says, go just tell them the Lord has need of it. The Lord has need of you. And if you have given your life to him, you are now his possession. When he said, go tell them if they ask you about it, just tell them the Lord has need of it. It's like Jesus saying, I have need of you. I possess you now. You are mine and I love you. Give your life to me. Surrender yourself and all of your possessions to me. He has the right to our possessions. He also has the right to receive our praise and worship. Because they were praising him, Hosanna, Hosanna. And what did the Pharisees tell him to do? Tell them to be quiet and stop praising you. And what did Jesus say? What did he say? He said, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would have to cry out. Because he alone is worthy of all praise and honor and glory and worship. So he has the right to our possessions and, of course, to our praise and worship. But he also has the right to bring about his will on earth and in our lives as it is in heaven. To bring about his will and his plan in his way. So he entered Jerusalem but wept because they didn't recognize his way. Men wanted a kingdom to come by acts of power and might. And by more miracles. But Jesus' plan simply was to do the will of the Father. To bring about the kingdom, not by power and might, but by personal pain, rejection, suffering, by the way of the cross. Remember last week we talked all about persecution? The persecution of the church. That many Christians around the world suffer persecution. We all do. And we should be expected to. That's what we talked about last week. But so many of us still are under the impression that the way of God is not necessarily the cross, but it's wonders and miracles and prosperity. But the way of the Lord we see 
was one of need, of rejection, of suffering and pain. So as followers of Christ, we are expected to take up our cross even as Jesus said it. But let's not miss this point. In the midst of persecution, in the midst of suffering, of carrying our burdens, and of enduring trials, the offer of the Lord is peace. Because Jesus rode into Jerusalem wanting to bring peace to His people. That's why He wept. She said, only if you knew, only you, my beloved Israel, if you knew those things that would make peace. So what is it that makes peace in our lives? That's what we need to think about. What is it that brings peace in our lives? What does peace look like? Jesus said He was coming to bring peace. What does that look like? What I'll show you a few few passages from Scripture. All about peace. Because we need to remember that the message of Christ was one of peace. He came to ride into Jerusalem to bring peace. That's not what happened. John 14, 27. Jesus said, Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. So let not your hearts be troubled. Neither let them be afraid. How important that is for us to remember that He says He's giving us peace but not as the world gives. That's what we need to remember. Anything the world can offer that might look like peace will be fleeting and not lasting. Only Jesus Christ Himself can offer true peace in this life. Philippians 4, 6, and 7. He says, Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication and thanksgiving, Let your requests be made known to God. And then why? Here's the promise. So the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. The promise there is that Jesus says, I have peace and I want to give it to you. Remember we talked about, Jesus said, come to me all you are weary and heavy burdened and I will give you rest. He says that I'm bringing you, I want you to have peace and rest. You don't have to carry that burden alone. So he says, just come to me in prayer. Be thankful and I'll give you a peace you won't even know where it comes from. And it will guard your heart and mind in Christ Jesus. Those things that make for peace that Jesus wept over because the people didn't see it from their skewed vantage point. What makes peace in the life of a Christian? It's submission to God's will. It's surrendering our will to His It comes through prayer. How do we receive peace? We pray. He said it in Philippians 4. Just pray and I'll give you that peace. Stay in consistent fellowship and communion with me. Submit to my will. Jesus wants that peace, that shalom for us. That word in Hebrew for peace is shalom. Psalm 85, 8 says, Let me hear what God the Lord will speak. For He will speak peace to His people, to His saints. But let them not turn back to folly. God Himself will speak peace to His people. It is about doing God's will. Romans 14 says, Make every effort to do what leads to peace. That means not only in our hearts, but in our relationships. 
we know relationships can be difficult, right? Whether you're married or not, we know relationships between siblings and parents, husbands and wives. Doesn't it take compromise? Doesn't it take listening and understanding? Doesn't it take, as it says in Ephesians, submission? Submit to one another. Remember that passage, the famous one we always love about husbands and wives? But before he even gets to that, Paul says, submit to one another. Let's make this all work. He wanted harmony. For us to have harmony with God, to have that peace that only He can give, Paul says in Romans 14, make every effort to do what leads to peace in our hearts, in our relationships, in our church. And the world will then know we are His by that love and that peace. Colossians 3.15 Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you are called in one body, and be thankful. That peace should rule in our hearts. Peace is a fruit of the Spirit. We also know we have peace because Jesus overcame the world. John 16, 33. I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. He makes it so simple. In the world you will have tribulation. But take heart. I have overcome the world. What a great verse to memorize. John 16, 33. I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace because in the world you will have tribulation. But take heart. I have overcome the world. Again, he's saying the only kind of peace that you should desire and that will last is the kind that only he can give. Peace really comes down to this. It comes down to accepting it or rejecting it. Like the triumphal entry. They accepted him, but not in truth. Not in actuality of who he truly was. Which led to their rejection. Jesus ultimately rejected Jerusalem because they had rejected him. And we should take away from that this simple fact. For all of us to know there are consequences for rejecting the Messiah. See, Jesus' purpose of riding into Jerusalem was again to make public His claim to be their Messiah. Remember, before that, He had always told His disciples, don't go and tell people what I'm really here for. Don't tell them who I truly am. But now was the time when He said it was okay. He allowed the crowds to worship Him. When the Pharisees said, keep them quiet, He said, no, even the stones have to cry out. It is time for me to be known as their Messiah, the King of Israel. He received a great welcome, a royal reception. But it was under false assumptions of how He was about to bring those things that lead to peace. The people wanted peace. But they wanted peace through strength and war and fighting. But Jesus wept because He said, if only you knew those things that make true peace. Right? Different perspectives and vantage points on the same event. And when the crowd's expectations were not met, when he failed to bring peace by the sword as they wanted, what happened a few days later? They quickly turned on him. But don't we sometimes do the same thing when things don't turn out the way we want? When we are asking Jesus to do something for us, But sometimes it turns out to be just the opposite or it's not what we were praying, praying for. 
What does that mean? Has God abandoned us? Is He not listening to us? Does He not care? Is He not kind and compassionate and long-suffering? No, we have to always remember that His ways are not our ways. The crowd rejoiced, but really for the wrong reasons, so Jesus wept over it. And again, I said it was only 40 years later in A.D. 70 that the temple was destroyed by those very same Romans that had already occupied the city that the people were wanting Jesus to conquer. I conclude with this. Earlier in Luke chapter 13, verse 34, look at what he said. He said, this is Jesus saying this, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings and you were not willing. Can I read that again for you? Again, it's, the, it's just picture it. We just said in verse 41 of our passage, in verse 41 and 42, it says Jesus wept. He's saying the same thing here in Luke 13. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it, how often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings? But you were just not willing. See, Jesus had such a heart and compassion for His people, for all of us, and now for His church. And He looks out at us and He says, Oh, my church, my church, those who still deny Me, who disobey Me, even though they call Me Lord, Lord. He he says, How I want to just take My arms and wrap them around You like... A hen gathers her own and comforts you and ease your burden and give you the peace that only I can give you. You know when you're a child and you're feeling afraid, maybe there's a storm and there's a lot of thunder and lightning and so what do the children normally do? They run to jump into their parents' bed, right? Because they're looking for that security. They want their parents to gather their arms around them and hold them tight and protect them like a hen, Jesus says, gathers her own. To give them peace that only they can give. That only they can give. So Jesus says, He says that to the people of Israel in the triumphal entry, which in many ways wasn't a triumph at all from the world's perspective. But he says that again in Luke 13. If I would just be able to gather you together. Bring you under my wings. But he says you're just not willing. So God is calling us this morning, church, to be willing. To be willing to fall into the arms of our Heavenly Father. To accept the joy. To accept the ease of burden. To accept the rest. To accept the hope. To accept the peace that only He can give us. Jesus wept and He said, if you only knew those things that make for peace. Jesus offers peace to you this morning. It's only found in Him and no one else. It's only found in His ways 
and not the ways of the world. It's only found in trusting in Him and in no other gods. It's only found in His will, in His ways, in His words. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for Your words this morning, Your words of life and truth. God, we recognize what happened to Your people just shortly after their ultimate rejection of You. We recognize, Father, that they didn't truly see Jesus for who He was and what He came to bring. But we thank You that from our vantage point we can know the truth. And it is that truth that sets us free. Jesus Christ Himself. Thank You that we can know Him and know the peace that He has come to offer. Father God, it's our desire that we would live for You in obedience to You, worshiping You, surrendering ourselves to You so that there would be no cause as our Heavenly Father to weep for us because of our disobedience and our lack of understanding. If we would recognize that it's all about Your will and Your way, and your word. God, help us to be in tune to that this morning. And Jesus, as we go throughout our week, and as we remember the events that, take, that took place in Jesus' life on the last few days of his life on earth, that we would be mindful of what it is that we do, what it is that we say to one another, that we would seek out to have peace with each other. Peace with those within the church so that we can then represent You well. And God, we know that this world will never offer us a true and everlasting peace, but only You can do that. So we put our faith and our trust in You, Lord Jesus, and we thank You for all that You have done and that You will continue to do in and through us. We thank You in Jesus' name. Amen.